Okay, so some of y'all are probably wondering about my costume. I feel like it needs a little bit of explanation. It's a little bit of a concept costume. Um, so I've already told some of you who I am, so if I've already told you, don't guess. But can anybody figure out the concept? I mean, I'll give you a couple clues. I'm in my preacher's robe that I wear on some Sundays when I go preach at churches that require preacher's robes. Um, so I'm wearing a preacher's robe. I'm wearing Texas cultural items. Anyone want to guess? Not a judge. Multiple people thought I was a Texas judge. Not that. You were wrong. (laughs) What do you think? What? I told you. How dare you, winter farmer. He's a winter farmer, I know you can tell, because it's very vague. But I am the minister of culture, like Matthew McConaughey, except I'm actually a minister garbed in Texas culture. Get it? All right, shots fired at Matthew McConaughey. I'm the true Texas Minister of Culture I would like to be. Um, I'll talk to him about it next time I see him. He actually, his kid was in the same class as Lucy Trapp. It's true. But they didn't become friends as much as I asked Chrissy, or uh, Lucy, to make that happen. Just never did. It's a bummer. Um, Anyway, shot or shot, didn't happen. Um, Welcome to RUF. Glad you're here. My name is John Trapp. Um, so glad to have y'all here tonight. Um, at RUF, every night we talk about the gospel. And the gospel is something that, it, that's actually a technical word uh, from the first century uh, in Rome. The gospel in the first century was news. It was good news. It was good news that was sent out by Roman emperors to announce good news of the birth of a child in the royal family, or to announce a victory that had been won in some far-off distant land. And so what Christians did is they actually took that word gospel, and they applied it to what they believed. They said, we actually have a different gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of another king who's been born, and a victory that he has made in this world. And so they began to go around and spread this good news. And I think that that's a really important um, nuance to the Christian religion, that it is, by definition, news. And that's different from the other world religions in this sense. The other world religions, and I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, I know that, but the other world religions are essentially advice. Advice about how you can ascend to God or about the things that you can do to be righteous enough, or to live a good enough life to get to nirvana or paradise or whatever. What the Christian religion is saying is something that's actually quite opposite. It's not advice about what you need to do. It's news about what has been already done. It's not about advice about what you need to do to ascend to God. It's news about the God who has condescended to mankind in order to save them. And so what we do every night at RUF is we talk about this news. And the, the only thing that you need to believe this news is to realize that the, the only way you can get it, the only way you can get this news, you can't, you can't earn it. You can't earn it. You only get it by faith because it's about, what, it's about the news of what Jesus has done, not about what we do for him. And so all that you need in the Christian religion is need. And that's the path to faith. 
And we're saved by faith alone. And so what that means is if you're here and this is your first Christian thing that you've ever been to, we're so thankful that you would choose to come here. Like, we want to honor that and we appreciate that. And what I want you to know, or if you've been to RUF like thousands of times, what I want you to know is that all of us equally need the good news of Jesus. It's not that someone has like been going to church their whole life and they don't, they've lived this righteous life and so that because of that, God loves them. All of us need the good news of Jesus. And what we're going to look at tonight is the so what of the gospel. A lot of my sermons, you hear me end with so what. Um, like what does this mean for us? And this passage that we're going to look at from the book of Acts really gets at the so what of the gospel. If all of this is true, if this news is true, how does that impact our lives today? What does that mean? So that's what we're going to look at. Um, Let me read the passage. We find ourselves, as we've been going through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11. Um, We skipped Acts chapter 10 because I preached on it last year when we were going through the life of Peter. If you want to hear about that, you can listen to the sermon on the podcast from uh, last year. But in Acts chapter 11, um, we pick up, and Peter has just received a vision from the Lord telling him that the church, that the good news of Jesus isn't just for Jews. Because right now, at this point, it's pretty much only Jewish people are following Jesus, have believed the gospel. And God sends this vision to Peter to tell him, no, my plan is global. The Christian faith, the work of Jesus, isn't just for a select few. It's for all kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And immediately following that, we get Acts chapter 11. And listen to what happens. Now the, gospel, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Skipping down to verse 18. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. And taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The grass withers and the flowers fade. These words of our God will stand forever, and they're given to us because God loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you um, for these, your words, and we pray that you would um, speak to us now through through your holy word. Um, Help us to see more of who you are and um, the kind of grace that you have for sinners like us. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight, two-point sermon. 
Uh, I want to, we're, we're talking about the so what of the gospel. So first we're going to look at the indicative of the gospel. Sorry, we're getting grammatical here. You remember these sentences that you learned in, in school? The indicative of the gospel, and second, the imperative of the gospel. The indicative, the imperative. Okay, first we're going to look at the indicative of the gospel. All right, when an amazing story happens to you, you have to tell it. And I'm going to tell you an amazing story that happened to us last week. So, the Traps went to Tahoe for, I, I was speaking at Stanford's fall conference, and I had a lot of you all praying for me um, and for Chrissy, and uh, as we were traveling with five kids on two connecting flights, it was, it was a bit much, to say the least. Anyway, we get to Tahoe, we get everyone squared away, um, we get the kids to bed, and it's just, we're so excited about the trip because um, one of my best friends from college at Vanderbilt is now the campus minister at Stanford. His, his wife was Chrissy Trapp's roommate at Vanderbilt. So like the four of us, it's super fun to hang out, to be together, kind of like living the same lives in different places. They have four kids. We have five kids. So there was nine children and four adults in the Airbnb that we destroyed, I mean, lived in. Um, and so... We're all, all the kids are settled in. Crawford and I leave to go meet the Stanford students who are arriving at a different Airbnb house about 10 minutes away from ours, and that's where they were going to have their fall conference. So it's just Chrissy and her friend sitting on the couch. It's about 9 o'clock, finally in a quiet house. And um, just to set the scene for you, because this is important, I want you to imagine that Rachel, her friend, is sitting where Stuart Lyons is in his beautiful kilt over there. And that white door is the front door of the house where they're sitting. But Rachel is, she's in this big comfy chair where she's just facing this way to Chrissy. And Chrissy's sitting on the couch about where I am. And they're just hanging out. And all of a sudden, Chrissy hears this noise on the front porch. It sounds like this. She's like, I, I have scared her before, and she cried and got really mad at me, and I've learned never to do that again. But she's like, is he actually trying to scare me again? Like, what is going on? And about two seconds later, the front door slams open, and a bear walked into the house. A big, adult, brown bear. Two moms, nine children. And there's, like, garbage everywhere because we, they, the place didn't have trash bags, and so we we're going to get trash bags the next day. It's like a buffet for the bear when it walks into the house. Children and trash. Bear's best dreams, right? So the bear walks in about halfway through the door, and Chrissy freezes. Rachel's looking at Chrissy, and she's like, all the blood went out of Chrissy's face. Like, her face just goes white. And then Chrissy just goes, Rachel. It's a bear. <laughs> and the bear walks in, scopes everything out, looks to the right, looks to the left, turns around and leaves. And Chrissy just sits there for like 15 more seconds. And she's like, I'm going to go close the door. And she like ninja runs across the room, slams the door, locks it. And then they just like both start hysterically kind of like laughing, crying, mixture, emotion thing. They call me and they're like, <laughs> like I was like, what's going on? There's a bear. But the bear like got into the van and like rummaged through the van. There was bear hair and dirt and everything and claw marks. It was wild. 
okay? Um, I have told that story probably like 25 times in the last two weeks since that happened. Do you know why? Because it's unreal. Like, there's been some, when we just sat around and talked about it the rest of the weekend, like, what if the bear had come in? What if the bear had gone to that wing of the house where there were two kids, or that wing of the house where there were seven kids, or into the kitchen and just started eating a snack? Like, what would you have done? We had so many conversations about it. Why do we have so many conversations about it? Because it was unbelievable. It was this crazy story that happens, and we couldn't stop talking about it, and that's exactly what's happening to the church in the first century. This amazing thing happens to them and they can't stop talking about it. People experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is sent and the church begins to grow by the droves. And people can't stop talking about it. But in verse 19, we see, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the church had stayed in Jerusalem. And Jesus had told his disciples, he had been like, y'all listen, my mission is for you to go to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But they stayed in Jerusalem. But then the church experiences persecution. There's the first Christian martyr happens, Stephen. And when that goes down and all of this persecution breaks out in the city against Christians, they're scattered throughout the world. And as they scatter, these people who are now holding the very Holy Spirit of God in them, go out as light into the darkness. And the church begins to grow. And we see in verse 20 what happens next. These people show up in Antioch. And you can see, like, some people go to Phoenicia, some go to Cyprus, and they're telling no one but Jews about the good news of Jesus. And there was a reason for this, by the way. Because Jews had at least a conception of the Messiah who was to come. And so you see this all throughout the book of Acts. If Paul goes as a missionary to a new city, he is trying to reach all kinds of people there, but he always first goes to the synagogue, and he opens up the Old Testament and begins to preach to them and teach, like, Jesus has fulfilled all of the prophecies of who the Messiah would be. And he would teach in this way. But in verse 20, something happens where, like, it's almost like the people who just go to Antioch, they just can't help but they, they, they start talking to these Hellenists. It would be like Greeks, Gentiles. And they tell them about Jesus. And the craziest thing happens. In this city, this huge city that was crazy cosmopolitan, it will be a little bit like Austin, Antioch was. It was the third biggest city in Rome. It was this kind of very well-educated, wealthy, artistic city where you kind of wouldn't imagine that like people, people were you know, cosmopolitan and they kind of had their act together. And these random people from Jerusalem show up telling them a religion started by these fishermen. And they, the craziest thing is they all start to believe. They all start to believe what they're telling them. And the way that they preach, it's actually, they preach it, the gospel slightly differently. Not, not different in truth, but from a different angle. Because when, when someone would preach the gospel to a Jew, they would say Jesus is the Messiah. And they would be like, okay, cool, I get that. If you said Jesus is the Messiah to a Gentile, they'd be like, huh, what are you talking about? So instead, what you see in verse 20, they show up preaching the Lord Jesus. They're preaching that Jesus is Lord. 
And the reason that they're doing that is because in that culture, at that time, there was only one person who was Lord. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. That's what you would have said. But these random people show up and they say, Jesus Curios. There's a different Lord. Jesus is his name. Jesus is Lord. Now, I want you to think about what that claim entailed. Because to be a citizen in Rome in the first century, you had to say Kaiser Curios. You had to assent that Caesar is Lord. And what that meant is that Caesar was divine. He had divine power over you. He had complete sovereignty over you and the place where you lived. Everything was under the authority of Caesar. And he was the one to be feared. And if there's a different Lord, that means there's a different world power. There's a greater world power. And that changes everything. It means Caesar doesn't matter anymore. It's an incredibly provocative thing that these people show up preaching in Antioch. The indicative truth of the gospel. That Jesus is Lord. And that indicative truth of the gospel changes everything when we believe it. Because the reality for us is just like the people who are living in Antioch under the thumb of this idea that Caesar is Lord, all of us live with a Lord. Every single one of us live with lords, with things that we give authority in our lives, with things that we fear. For some of us, our Lord is success and we fear. We fear failing. If your Lord is success, that means that you're terrified to miss any of the thousands of meetings that the clubs that you're involved with have. You're afraid to miss it because you're afraid to lose power and acclaim in those clubs. You're afraid to get a bad reference. Or maybe you're afraid not to double major. Because it's, even though it's going to kill you, you're going to do it because your Lord is success. Even if it means working crazy hours in school, even if it's bad for your mental health, you're going to do it because you're afraid of failure. Your Lord is success. For some of you, your Lord is dating relationships. Your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And so you're afraid of losing it. Your boyfriend gets mad at you, and so you feel like you have to drop everything. You have to drop everything to make it all better because you're terrified of getting dumped. Or you allow your girlfriend or your boyfriend to do things to your body because you're afraid of what happens if you say no. Because it's your Lord and you're afraid of it. And I don't say that to accuse anyone or to shame them. I say that to tell you that you, that, that, that you are worthy of more than that fear. For some of us, our Lord is people's opinions about us. And so we'll do whatever, whatever it takes to think that it will make people happy with us. We'll spend an embarrassing amount of time trying to think of just the right caption on that Instagram post. We'll lie to people and tell them that we're okay when we're actually not. 
because we're terrified of what happens if we fail that Lord? What happens if people don't think I'm great or fun or cute or awesome all the time? And here's the thing. All of those Lords are ruthless judges. Because if you fail them, they are unforgiving in their punishment. They shame you. They make you feel terrible. They're horrible lords. But if Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. It means that fearing those things is kind of ridiculous. It would be like when the bear walked into the house. If the first words out of Chrissy's mouth had been like, Oh my gosh, Rachel, look at that moth over there. Ooh, yuck, M- bugs. Like, wait, why are you afraid of a bug right now? There's a bear in the room, right? If Jesus is Lord, if he is the king over everything, then there's nothing else worth fearing. Everything is so small compared to him. If Jesus is king... Jesus is king. Y'all heard that phrase lately, this week? Maybe on Spotify? I don't know. Listen to the album multiple times. Kanye West. Jesus is king. It's fantastic. You should check it out. Anyone who raps about Chick-fil-A, I'm immediately in on. Um, but uh, I was list- I've been watching a lot of stuff on him this week. I was listening to an interview that he gave, and someone said, uh, someone asked him, Kanye, do you feel like, you know, your conversion to Christianity and being so outspoken about the gospel and all of this stuff, like, do, you, do you think this is going to hurt your career? And he said, man, I fear and love God. When you remove the fear and love of God, you create the fear and love of everything else. And I think he's speaking from experience. When you remove the fear and love of God, you begin to fear and love everything else. Fear and loving success. Fearing and loving relationships. Fearing and loving people's opinions. Fearing and loving wealth. Fearing and loving all these things. So why should we fear God? Well, A, because he's the bear in the room. Like, he is mighty. If Jesus is truly king, if he is curios, if he is Lord, then that means that he is the creator. He's everything that he said he was. And the, the, the book of John says that everything was made, that without him was not anything that was made, made. He made everything. If Jesus is Lord, then that means he's all-powerful. And his miracles that he did on this earth show us that, that he's powerful over things like weather systems and sickness and hunger. If he's Lord, it means he's powerful, he's creator, he's the judge who will one day judge the earth. Do you know what it also means? He's kind. If Jesus is who he says he is. He's the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He's forgiving. The one who says, whoever believes in the Son will have everlasting life. And most importantly, he can't be Lord if he's not alive. He's alive. He defeated death. The monster that we most fear. Jesus rose from the grave. And if he really did defeat that, 
And if he really holds that same defeat over death out to anyone who would believe in him, no matter how sinful they are, but because of the work that he's done on their behalf, not because they have somehow worked up enough righteousness and done enough good, if that's true, it's a game changer. I mean, look at what we're saying in the sands of time are sinking. Look at the last verse. Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. How? How do we get in? What's the indicative truth of the gospel? I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. Do you know what this means? What you stand on is not your work. It's not that you've lived up to the advice and done a good job. You stand on the reality that Jesus has done everything for you. He's finished it. He's done it. And so when God looks at you, if your faith is in Jesus, he smiles. He's pleased with you. He's not put out with you. See indicative truth of the gospel. Do you know how good this is? It's so good. God does so much of the saving. Did you see what it says in verse 18 about the Gentiles? To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who is the one acting there? It's God. God is so gracious. He knows that we are so rebellious that we would never move toward him first. What God does is he comes to the Gentiles and he even gives them the ability to repent. It's a gift that he gives. If the gospel is that big, if he does 100% of the saving, then what does that mean? So what? What's the imperative of the gospel? I want you to see how this plays out for the people in Antioch. And I want to be clear on this. The imperatives, y'all know what an imperative sentence is? It's a command, like, go do this. Every time in the Bible, the imperatives always follow the indicatives. And it's never reversed. And we reverse it all the time. We think that if we can live the commands, if we get the commands right, if we do the imperatives, then we'll get the indicative truth of God's love over us. So if I do the right things, then God will love me. But that's never how it works. Jesus never shows up and starts commanding people. He shows up and first gives them grace and welcomes them to him. And that's what we see in the gospel. That's what we see in the Old Testament. When <laughs> before, before the Israelites get the Ten Commandments, you know, what Jesus, you know what God does for them? He frees them. He doesn't show up in Egypt and is like, hey, listen, I'll get you out of this whole slavery situation in Egypt. Here's my Ten Commandments. Start living them, and then I'll get you out. Nope. He frees them from Egypt. He destroys their enemies as they cross the Red Sea. Then he takes them to the foot of the mountain where he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And even before that, even before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, listen, you're my treasured possession. I love you. Then he gives them the commands. The indicatives always precede the imperatives. But here's the other thing that I need you to know. The imperatives always follow the indicative. In other words, here's what we, here's what we can like veer off wrongly in like reformed theology. I don't know if you know that, what that is, but like you're at RUF. R, the R in RUF stands for reformed, and it's a theological 
like perspective on the Bible, okay? Here's where Reformed people can get this wrong sometimes. This is the ditch that we fall into a lot. If, if one side of the ditch is like believing that you have to earn your salvation, the other side of the ditch is, oh, like, sweet. So I just like believe and I get into heaven for free? That's pretty sick. Okay, I'll do that. Sure, I believe in you, God. Okay, good, and we're good. Got my get out of hell free card, and I'm going to go live my life. But the imperatives always follow the indicative. Always. So much so that James, in James 2, verse 19, James is like, hey, listen, if you think that you can believe and not have, like, and not be living the imperatives, not be living, like, God's commands, guess what? Even the demons believe. The demons believe and shudder at God, James says. James goes as far as to say, hey, listen, faith without works is dead. Now, that sounds really different from what you hear at RUF a lot, right? Faith without works is dead? What? Here's what this means. When we truly believe and see what Christ has done for us, if, it's, if he actually has done all the work and he's given us this salvation and we believe that, that's going to change the way that we live. We're going to begin living not in order to get his love, but because we already have it. And you know, like, this is intuitive. If, if the day after Chrissy and I got married, the day after Chrissy and I got married, I was like, okay, I'll see you later. I've got a date tonight. She'd be like, what? What do you mean you have a date tonight? You, do you understand the promises that I made to you? Do you understand the union that we've entered into? This is, you see, love begets more love, right? When we truly believe what God has done for us, what, what this does is works follow. They don't earn our salvation, but they do, they do show us if we actually believe. They do reveal what we really believe. So much so that Martin Luther, who like founded the Reformation, he put it this way. Martin Luther, a guy who, by the way, he would die on the hill of like, you're saved by faith alone, right? Like that guy was willing to die for that. I kind of look like him right now on this rib. But he, he said, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, when we, when we truly believe in Jesus, when we have saving faith in him, what that's going to do is it's going to cause us to live our life differently. And that's what we see here with the church in Antioch. And I want you to see it, look at a couple things that begin happening after they believe in the gospel, after God grants them repentance, even to the Gentiles. Verse 25, they begin sitting under biblical preaching. Barnabas goes and gets Saul, a.k.a. the apostle Paul, wrote a lot of the Bible. Barnabas shows up and he sees like, he's like, whoa, all these Gentiles are Christians. We've got to train them. We've got to teach them the faith. They need to, they need to know more about who God is. They need to, like, we got to go get Saul. And he, he runs down to Tarsus and grabs Saul. He's like, come up here. And Saul hangs out for a year. He hangs out for a year in Antioch and he teaches them the gospel. And this grows us. We need this. This is what sanctifies us. It makes us more like Jesus. This grows us because we are so quick to forget the gospel. 
We're so quick to forget that the way that we were saved is because of Jesus' grace. We're so quick to forget that the Christian life is a life of repentance. And good biblical preaching reminds you of that. And we need that. Look at verse 26. Do you know what else they had? The other, another implication, an imperative of the gospel, they had a church. They formed a church. This was just the logical conclusion to the gospel being true. And that happens all throughout the book of Acts. There's no one in the book of Acts where it's like, oh, they became a Christian and like, they don't really need the church anymore. They're just going to do their own thing. Always, 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 when someone becomes a Christian, they're baptized in the book of Acts, which means they are initiated into the church. It's the logical conclusion. Because God is not only reconciling us to himself in the gospel, he's reconciling us to one another. And so if you're, if you're a Christian and you're here, I want to tell you this is not your church. RUF is not a church. You don't take vows to be in RUF. I don't administer the sacraments to you. This is not a church. I would encourage you to find a church if you're a Christian. You need it. If you're thinking about being a Christian, like, yeah, maybe go check out a church. And we're here, too, to help you, like, just process. If you're like, I'm not sure I could darken the doors of a church yet, that's fine. Please keep coming here. But if, you, if you're looking to grow in your faith, my encouragement to you would be, yeah, do RUF, be involved, come here. But you need to be in a church in Austin. We need this because it grows us. And this is what happens in verse 26. Did you see that this is, I love this little detail. In Antioch, it's the first time the disciples were called Christians. Do you know, you know why theologians think that that's the first time? Um, well, first off, a lot of people think it was like a derogatory term, Christians. It means like little Christ. Like, well, look at all the little Christs. Well, they're kind of weird. What's up with them? But the reason that they called them that is they had no other way to like group these people together. These people had nothing in common. Like, the church was crazy diverse, all kinds of people, tribe, tongue, ethnicities. They had all kinds of socioeconomic classes represented. They had all kinds of ages and backgrounds and cultures. And the only thing that united them was, I don't know, Jesus. So they called them Christians. That, and I want you to know that that kind of racial reconciliation, that is an imperative of the gospel that we need to pray for in our country. We pray for that to happen in RUF. All kinds of people, independents and Greeks, Dallas and Houston people, like, I don't know, pick a, pick a contingent that's like, doesn't usually hang out. God's people, when they're united to him, begin to be united to one another. It's an imperative of the gospel. And finally, final point, verse 27 through 30, they begin to give of themselves to others. They practice just generosity. This guy named Agabus prophesies that there's going to be uh, a famine. Oh, and the people in Antioch are wealthy. They're like, man, there's all these Christians down in Jerusalem. They're going to need some help. And they just pool their money together, and they don't even know them. Like, have you ever thought, like, they don't know them. But they're like, they're Christians. They're in our family. We're going to take care of them. And so they do. They pull their money together, and they take care of them. 
one of the imperatives of the gospel is that we begin living for the good of other people. Why do we do that? Because look at verse 18. God gave them repentance. He gave them the only thing that mattered, the only thing that they need. God has given it to them. They've received it from God's hand. And so how can they not now become givers as well? They have everything they need, and God's given it to them. It can't be taken away. And because, they are given, because they've been given to, they no longer have to take. Do you know what that means? It means if you're a Christian, when you show up at church, when you show up at RUF, you don't show up as a guest. You show up as a host. What does a host do? What does a host do at a party? They get there before the guests. They stay late to make the guests, like make sure the guests are cared for well. They welcome the guests. They make sure the guests' needs are taken care of. What happens when Christians begin treating the church like we're all guests? We become consumers of the church. We don't serve it. We show up late, kind of leave unnoticed. We don't think about how to care for the others around us. We choose to go places where there's just other people like us, where it's kind of comfortable. Because we're treating, we think we're the guests. If you're a Christian, you're the host. And that's what we see here with these people. Do you know what I would, I mean, like, this is kind of like parting shot. It's kind of side note before I close. If you're thinking about dating someone and you're a Christian, I would encourage you to date somebody who's a giver and not a taker. Like, think about who is it, who do you see walk into a room and they, they don't act like a guest, they act like a host. They act like someone who's there to, to give of themselves, to give their friendship away, to give their resources away for the good of the people around them, to give their listening ear to people who aren't there to dominate, to take. Um, I would encourage you to consider dating someone like that. I don't know, maybe they go to RUF and you should ask them on a date. Um, because what's at the heart of abusive speech? Taking. What's at the heart of premarital sex? Someone who wants to take something from you that's not theirs. What's at the heart of extravagant spending? Self-interest taking. What would it look like for you instead to consider looking for someone who is living out the imperatives of the gospel? Not because they're trying to get God to like them, but because they believe that he does. Do you know who you would find? You'd find somebody who's giving of themselves. The fruit of the Spirit, love. Giving love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Guys, you want your wife to be like that. Girls, you want your husbands to be like that. Somebody who's giving and not consuming. I want you to see how normal their Christian life is. God grows us so normally. He's doing it. It's not, it's, it, this is not some secret thing that he's doing um, with Antioch. They're sitting under the word. They're in relationships with others in the context of the church, and they're practicing generosity and hospitality. It's the imperatives of the gospel. It's the so what. Let's do that in this community, to this campus. I think the Lord will use you to really change this place. And I already see him doing it. I hope you're encouraged by that. I love you guys. Let me pray. Father, thanks so much for this time and this to, um, to sit in your word. 
And to remember um, that you are a God of grace, I pray that you would give us the faithfulness uh, for anyone who believes in you to live out the imperatives of the gospel, not in order to get your love, but because we have it. And I pray for anyone who's here considering if this is true, and I ask that they might see the beauty of the hope of the reality if you're the Lord, Jesus, um, what that would mean for them um, to have a judge who is forgiving. Um, and who has entered into time and space to save them. And I pray all this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing.